0: All right, good morning, friends. Good morning. I hope you guys are well. Let's uh, flip back to 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> it's been a few weeks. I was gone last week, and the week before that, we actually took a little break and looked at Psalm uh, 139. Uh, really, the reason uh, some folks were asking, hey, why did we, why'd you uh, deviate uh, from 1 Corinthians? And it came down to this these are, I think, and the messages in 1 Corinthians, are incredibly valuable. And they're incredibly challenging, right? Because essentially the the narrative of 1 Corinthians or the the first letter that we have that Paul wrote to Corinth is the idea that you have two natures, right? You have your Adamic nature, the nature, your physical nature that you receive from Adam, that sinful nature. And that's the the rebellion. And it's it's kind of who we are in our natural. The Bible calls it the old man, calls it the flesh, the dead flesh. And then you have a new nature. If you're a believer in Christ, you've been given a new nature, uh, which was created in Christ when he rose again from the dead. And so as believers, we're constantly at, at a, uh, a war, uh, a uh, tug of war, however you'd like to put it. There's conflict in our hearts and our souls and our minds of how we deal with, do we want to live by what our flesh says, our flesh craves, whether it's notoriety or riches or lust or fill in the blank. Uh, the flesh is that that sinful natures where those destructive words come from, destructive thoughts, hate, all those things. Or do I want to yield to this new nature I've been given in Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit that's calling me to love and so forth. So in a sense, we, in the in the beginning, we looked at it Uh, just in light of slogans, because I think they're the best demonstration, right? So if you go to Burger King, you have it your way. Why would that be a popular slogan? Because in my mind, I think if I go to Burger King, I get what I want which is the most popular idea in the world, right? Getting what we want. If I join the Marines, I can be one of the few good men. If I join this group of people, then I'm elite and I'm better than other people. I'm one of the few good. So most of the slogans that we have in our advertisement, they're all based around an idea of attracting the flesh, getting people to come because those kind of messages are attractive to us. Whereas Jesus comes along and he has a different message or slogan, if you will. He says, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. And instead, you need to take up your cross daily and follow after me. And otherwise, every day be willing to lay down your own life, not for anything, but for the sake of the kingdom of God. And it's growing in us as individuals and in, uh, on this earth around us to be able to lead people to Christ and to see uh, and for ourselves and others to, to walk into maturity, right? So we went to Psalm 39 because a lot of that is uh, as an encouragement because I think for many of us, a lot of times we've been taught or we think in kind of a black and white Uh, type of way, where we go either I'm condemned and terrible or I'm incredible, right? Uh, And sometimes our worship can be affected by that if we're willing to worship the Lord or if we're kind of sucked in about it or if we're all those things. But the reality is from the old covenant, which a lot of times just gets associated with law and blood, which there was a lot of, uh, was still by faith. And the new covenant is by faith in the blood of Christ. And so you see all those people, it doesn't matter if it's Abraham, Moses, Moses, Uh, Lot, you know, uh, Samson, Gideon, all those Old Testament people that we have to look at and they're kind of Sunday school heroes were all people who had extremely large sin and flaws, right? I mean, that's what we talk about. David sells out his, uh, or David sells out Uriah, has Uriah killed, sees a woman who's attractive, demands her to be brought to him. You have, you know, we won't rehash the whole thing. But you have all these people that were called to walk with God, who had radical deficiencies that would have earned them to be on some lists according to our law. And yet they were called men after God's own heart, women of faith, right? That's what they were called. And so we're not black and white creatures in the sense that you're either all of this or you're all of that. We are, for the most part, as believers in Jesus, people that are trying to let God into our lives, right? And then deal with our baggage and all that kind of stuff. And to come up with the idea that even if you're wrestling with your old nature, you're trying to, you know, again and again repenting, coming back to God, that he's not giving up on you, that you're not lost, that you're not somehow a second-class citizen or you're, you're somehow different. You know, Paul in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, he says, and they're in, in Romans chapter 7, and we covered this months ago, but he says, the good that I want to do, I don't find myself doing that. I don't do it. And he says, the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And, and again, it's noteworthy because a lot of doctrines will say, well, if you're practicing evil and it's because of a way that they interpret First John, then you're not actually saved. The problem is in, in, in Romans chapter 7 when Paul says the evil that I don't want to do, I do, literally in the Greek is the evil that I don't want to do, I practice. So it kind of eliminates this idea that you know, somehow there's a limit and you lose your salvation or, or whatever it might be that God is still working in your heart. Is there, is there difficulty with sin? Yeah, it will always destroy. It's what it does inherently. So we have hope. We have great hope. This morning, as we kind of dive back into 1 Corinthians 4, Paul's going to deal with the same two things up to this point that he's been dealing with. 1 Corinthians is a, is a, a very fascinating letter because it has all sorts. It's, it's a problem church. It's a church that many of us would never attend. Many of us would go there a couple times and be like, I'm bouncing out. I don't want any part of this. You have things like people suing each other. Uh, you have things like people, not just saying, like, I like this teacher or I like that teacher. They're actually making factions over it. Uh, like you might, uh, you might see over, like, Calvinism Calvinism or Arminianism or something like that. They're saying, they're saying, I'm of Paul. Not just, I like Paul's teaching, but they're saying, I'm of Paul. I associate, with myself, uh, associate myself with Paul, and they become arrogant from that association others are saying i'm from apollos others are saying i'm from peter others are saying oh i'm of jesus and paul says look when you make schisms or tears in your church specifically in their context in corinth when you make tears like that this is one of my favorite lines in the bible he says are you not acting like only a human <laughs> Because there's an illusion there. And this is the problem with Corinth. You have the weird sex stuff where you have a a stepson who has an open sexual relationship with his stepmother. You have the lawsuits. Uh, You have people getting drunk at uh, fellowships and partaking of of the the Lord's Supper. Uh, You have people debating over their teachers that they like and, and forming factions over them. And much more. An incredibly dysfunctional type of situation. And, but the, the problem is, in all of that, the issue is not just the symptoms. It's not that those things are happening. What Paul is lacing through this whole letter is the problem is this. We're yielding to the flesh. In fact, in, in chapter 3, he tells Cor- the, uh, the Corinthians that. He writes to them and he says, I can't talk to you like mature Christians because you're, you, you don't walk in what God has for you. He says, I have to talk to you like your little children. Because all you do is, you're, generally speaking, he says, you are responding to and walking out of your flesh, out of that old sinful nature. He calls them brothers and sisters, but he's still saying there's a big problem that's going on. So all the other sins that he's going to address are all from the same source. Self-exaltation, self-preference, self-domination. Trying to, uh, as it were, um, find identity in, And and, uh, whether it's dominate others or whatever, in myself. And Paul says, no, we have to get away from that as Christians. If we're going to walk with God, if we're going to see his His kingdom built, then as Christians, we have to listen to and be part of the Holy Spirit. So chapter 4 is a a continuation of the same uh, points that he's making about the different teachers. And he's going to throw in some... Uh, ideas here. He's going to throw in some uh, how we can look at good Bible teachers, how we can consider them, how we can look at just servants of God and how we consider them. And then he's going to use something that's really rarely used. You know, one time Jesus kind of threw out, I don't think I would call it an insult, but kind of a, a questionable, not that Jesus was questionable, not saying that. But he calls Herod a vixen, a female fox at one point. You really don't see a lot of irony or sarcasm in the Bible very often. But 1 Corinthians 4 is one of the places where you see it. And Paul's going to try to bring the Corinthians to understand their true position through some irony and through some sarcasm. Uh, And then really it comes down to a comparison of what nature are we yielding to. So with that we'll jump into it and let's see where it takes us. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 1. This is how one should regard us. Sorry, we'll stop there. (laughs) Who's the us? The us is the people that he'd been referencing this whole time. Paul, Apollos, Jesus, and Peter. Servants of God, generically. Later on, he's going to talk about uh, Apollos and himself in verse 6. So he's talking about them specifically. But this can lead to, and what we're going to talk about today for our sake, is more how do we look at and interact with uh, servants of God, and specifically Bible teachers. says this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they may be found that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, or by any human court. In fact I do not judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? So as we kind of kick this off, it's it's a, a little bit of a sobering idea here. You might think, wow, Paul's kind of copping an attitude. I don't think that's what's happening. If we read other places, if we look historically at who Paul was for some uh, the few extra biblical writings that we have about him, he doesn't seem to be a real pompous guy after his encounter with Christ. That seems to have really broken him and humbled him. And he seems to operate out of that place of, of, uh, from, through God's spirit. But he starts this off and he says, this is how one should regard us. So when we come to look at, in, in our society, we have uh, kind of all different, uh, I don't know, levels of, and I, I, I'm not levels because it's priority or something like that, but different genres, I guess, of, of God's servants, if you want to put it that way. We have people that write, you know, a million books, and they're really famous. We have people that have churches, and we have people that have tiny churches and home churches, and there's all sorts of expressions, right, of people, and there's there's you and I that are serving God. So what he's making the point specifically in in this case is about them, the us, it's them. And he says, the way that you should regard us, or the way that you should count us up to or consider us, think of us, he says, the way you should do that is you should think of us as servants and as stewards. Now you might be familiar, and if you are familiar with the, the, a lot of Paul's letters, he almost always starts his letters or somewhere includes in his letters that he's a bond servant for Jesus Christ. You familiar with that? And that word bondservant is doulos, and it's a reference to the Old Covenant, where if you had sold yourself into slavery, there were no social safety nets in the Old Covenant. So the way that you provided for your family is that you would sell yourself as an indentured servant to your neighbor, who maybe was doing better with crops or whatever the, the, the reason might be. And then if you found that he provided for you as as an, as, as you were as you as a servant, and him providing for you and your family very well, and he was very kind. You could actually become a bond servant, and you would swear an oath in front of the the uh, basically the elders of that particular town or city or where you're located, and they would put a gold ring through your ear, and you were then a lifetime servant of that person. And what the ring represented was. Uh, my master 's so good that I decided to pledge myself to him forever, and then he was forever obligated to provide for you and your family is what it went to so that 's oftentimes the word that Paul uses as a servant. This is different. This is not a voluntary slavery, if you will. This is actually the same word that it 's a Roman word from the navy, and it 's the word that 's for the the people that used to row the the, uh, the Roman ships right you, you guys all seen like some old movies, you know, Gladiator or whatever. And you see those, the, the different ships. There's always like 15,000 oars sticking out of the side. Typically, those were actually slaves. Uh, they estimate like 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. But, so typically, those were slaves that did it. But the, the, the word he's using are those people. It's under rowers. He's using, that's the word he uses for servants. Not the doulos, but the under rower. And so the, the point that he's making, he says, when you think of us as, as God's servants, you should think of us as those people that just keep rowing. that they don't have, They're not on deck, they're actually below deck, uh, and they're just rowing along. They're, they're laboring. That's the idea. And later on, he's actually going to use the word labor, but it's, it's toil, labor to exhaustion. So he says, when you look at us, he says, what you ought to consider us, and really what they ought to be, what we ought to be, you want to be under rowers. There's somebody that's basically working for the Lord. They're serving for the Lord. It's not a glamorous service. It's not a, it's, it's not a uh, uh, self-exalting service. It's laboring to make, you know, essentially for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That's the first thing that he says. That's how you should esteem Peter and Apollos and myself. People that are just under rowers. We're just there to serve Christ. The second part is, that he says, that we're stewards of the mysteries of God. Now a steward, uh, throughout the scripture, whether it's in the, uh, uh, the Gospels or wherever you read about it, a steward is, is someone who is res- uh, essentially responsible for something that is not their own. Someone who tends something that's not their own. So if you had a cattle rancher uh, and then he's got a bunch of employees, those are stewards, right? They're, not, they're cows, but they're there to take care of them and to, to help them. If, you have a, if you're you know, super uh, wealthy or if you're moderately wealthy, you might have a steward that oversees your taxes or something like that. They're watching over your money and your things, but, but they're not their own. So he says that first we're servants, and then he says now we're stewards. We're taking care of something that's not our own. And, and we'll talk more about that later, but it's a very important idea to look at God's word and God's kingdom and, that, and his truth that we're supposed to be part of and, and, and working with. It's not our own. It's the Lord's. We work with God's people. They're not our own people. They're God's people in, in all those ways. But I think what, one of the things I want to draw our attention to is this... Um, this phrase, that we're, that we're stewards uh, of, the, uh, of the mysteries of God, which sounds mysterious, right? It's in, the, it's, in the, it's in the word. What are the mysteries of God? Because a lot of times, uh, even from the beginning of, of Christianity with Gnosticism and stuff like that, uh, and I've said this before, look, most people like uh, you know, the Goonies, most people like national treasure, right? People, I don't know why they're embarrassed to admit they like national treasure, but most people did, Right? Why? Because it's secret treasure. We love that, right? We love X marks the spot. We love this idea that there's this secret thing out there, and if I can find it, then I'll be, in this case, i have the mysteries of God, and I will possess them. It's not that romantic. It's not the secret layers of Hebrew in the Old Covenant. It's not knowing what all the feasts you know, represent. It's not, being, that's not it. He says what it is. In, in uh, two chapters before, if you wouldn't mind flipping over, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he tells us exactly what these things are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 6, he says, Yet among the mature, that is, Christians that are walking with Jesus and heeding his spirit, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God declared before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen and nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has, past tense, revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And it goes on. But the point is, the bottom line that these secret mysteries, they're not something that we have to go and, and study for and dig out and figure out and all these different things. That's not it. What, the, the quote that he gives here about what I has not seen and all that, it's the gospel. That's what he's been talking about this whole time. The mystery is that Christ paid for sin. The mystery is that every uh, part of the old covenant pointed to the Messiah that would come and finally deal with sin forever. You know, it's an important point, and I know I was kind of harping on this a while ago, but I'll bring it up again. We have to realize, we have the Bible, and, and the Bible is really great. I mean, can we get an amen for that? I mean, the Bible is pretty solid, right? But you have to understand that Christians, the, the Bible in every home, it doesn't happen until like 1850. Think about that. Most churches didn't have a Bible until the 1500s. Because the Gutenberg Press doesn't come along until 1439, and they crank out a German Bible. So, so this idea that the hidden mysteries, they're all in the Torah, and if we read the Torah, and if we learn Greek, and if we learn Hebrew, that we'll know all the ins and outs, and definitions are fun, and all that stuff is fun, and it's great knowledge to have. But the vast majority of Christians lived without it. And they lived just fine. James, do you hate the Bible? No, I love the Bible. I think the Bible's great. I think we should study it. It's, it's worth it's, its weight in gold. It's, it's amazing. But the point of the message of the Bible is not to find secret hidden things so that we can be puffed up or I'm of this guy and I'm of that guy or I'm of this gal and this, that and the other thing and I know this and I have this great secret knowledge. No, the, the, the whole point for, the, for history of Christians was to love God and love one another and to preach Christ. That there's an answer for your sin problem. The guilt and the shame that you deal with every day. The burden that you can't quite put your finger on. That we try to solve with, with, with different things, whether it be entertainment or liquor or drugs or poetry. Finding some sort of depth or meaning in a job or in a sunset or whatever it might be. All the things that humanity has searched for to feel complete have all been found in Christ. And then to walk in that and the love that he has for us and to be filled for this with the Spirit as he leads us. That's been the emphasis of 1850 years. Because about 1850, when a British company decides, hey, we should start cranking out Bibles and try to get one into every home. And it's not long after that, in the U.S., they're like, hey, that's a good idea too. Let's do that. About the 1870s. That's when everybody had a Bible. So Christians were rocking almost 1900 years of just having the Holy Spirit and maybe having a couple of scraps at the church that they went to. Maybe if their church was somehow wealthy, they had a whole Bible. And so it's important that when we consider these things, these these mysteries, I'm not trying to make a mountain out of a molehill here, but to kind of dispense with this Gnostic idea, this knowledge idea that it's all in, in the secret. It's all, no, it's not. The Bible is great and we ought to read it, but it's in Christ. And yes, we see him in the scriptures But the Spirit leads us. We have one another. The Spirit is blessed, uh, or I should say, blesses us through each other. There's so much richness in the Christian life. But Paul says, Do you know how you should esteem, uh, in their case, apostles, a Bible teacher, someone at your church that does ministry? Do you know how you should esteem them? They're servants. Not to put, put them down, but they say, That's what they are. They're servants. That's what we are. We're servants. And they're stewards. They don't own anything that they have. You, know, if, if you any ministry that you want to pick out, if you have someone that's incredible with kids, they didn't, God gave them that. They don't own that. They're a steward of that. You know, whatever gifts you have, you, you don't own them. You didn't create them in you. If you're a math wizard, you didn't pop out of the womb and go, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure I only drink this kind of formula. I mean milk, because God forbid you have formula. But, you know, all the different weird things we get into, but you know what I'm saying? Like, you didn't choose it. You didn't, you didn't decide. You didn't, you know, whatever it might be. You had a gift that was given by God, and now you have a stewardship of it. So Paul says that that's how you consider God's people, God's servants, and then he makes a statement about that. He says, moreover, and literally like in, the, in this case, or because of this, or linking, linking the two statements, he says, moreover, it is required of a stewards that they be found faithful. So one of, and this is all throughout the New Testament. We're not going to camp on this for time's sake, but you know, whether it's the, the parable of the talents, or even uh, in 1 Corinthians 3 was, where Paul is talking about people that are part, they're saved individuals, that are Christians. That each, each person's uh, work, each person's participation in God's kingdom, that there'll be an evaluation of that. And if we participated and uh, if we built, if you will, our lives and we, uh, the people around us built in their lives with wood, hay and stubble, things that are of the flesh that are temporal, he says that there'll be a, a loss for that. That everything that we built with wood, hay, and stubble, if we used anger or guilt or shame to get people to do stuff at church, he says, those attitudes, that thing in you that demanded that, it'll be burnt away. He says, but if we built with gold, hay, and or I'm sorry, gold, silver, and precious stones, things that are are the idea they last, they're eternal. We built with love, we built with care, we built with the Holy Spirit, leading with the Word when we built with those things, he says that there's going to be a reward for that. There's going to be a a somehow and there's different imagery throughout the scripture. There'll be a reward. So here he's just making this point. He's saying, look, this is who we are. We're ministers. We're stewards. And it is required of us that we be faithful. And it's required of them and it's required of all of us. But verse three, this is this expands his point. But with me is a small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not judge myself. Now, well, the funny thing is, in our society, this is in a, in a half-truth, in a, in a twisted way. This is our society's cry, isn't it? I don't care if I'm judged by you. Who are you to me? Or, or how could you possibly judge me? You know, even though somebody can have like a reign of destruction in their life and the life of their children, all with it, you can't judge me. Right? Isn't that kind of how our society builds it? It's not the same thing here. Paul's not copying an attitude. He's not tweeting. He's just saying, look, it's not a. Uh, uh, my judge, my concern as God's servant is not if you measure me. See, they were measuring Paul. If you were to look at the next letter we have from Paul in chapter 10, verse 10, what there, the, the generalized Corinthian estimation of Paul was this You're not impressive. Your physical form is not impressive. Your oration is not impressive, but you write these big, bad letters. That's the paraphrase, but that's what they say about him. They say, ooh, your letters are big and scary and powerful, but in person, you're kind of a putz. You're not really impressive. That's what they say about Paul. We know that there's, a, there's something wrong in their thinking because Paul talks about in verse 7, uh, or I'm sorry, in verse 6, he says, don't go beyond what is written because... Don't become puffed up one against another. Another. See, what's happening is they're pitting Bible teachers against each other, and they're getting puffed up over what these people teach and the fact that they're associated with those people. Does that make sense? This is something that still goes on today, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. But in this case, he says, it's a small thing that I'd be judged by you. Not in pompousness, not in rage, not in as our society means, like I'll do whatever I want and you don't have a word to say to me. He's not saying that. He's saying, because I'm a steward of God's things, because I endeavor to be faithful, which is required of me, it doesn't really matter what you think of me, because I'm there to be faithful to what God has called me to do. And in this place, in this context, his commentary on his own life is, I don't, I'm not aware of anything in verse 4 that I'm not, not doing that I should do, or that I am doing that I should not do. And, and we'll talk more about that, because he says not even that really matters. So what's happening, and this happens all the time in, in pretty much any, I think, any kind of uh, establishment where people want one thing to be like another. And this, it happens in a lot of different ways. So Paul, imagine Paul and Apollos because they're kind of the two main examples he's using. We know from Acts that Apollos is what? He's an eloquent man, right? That's what he's called. Apollos is called an eloquent man in Acts. We know from 2 Corinthians that they call Paul, he's kind of wimpy. He's not impressive. He doesn't speak well, which would be a pretty substantial issue because in in Greek culture, oration is a heralded and a very valued and exalted trait. So you have one man, Apollos, who possesses that trait, and you have another one, Paul, who evidently doesn't possess that trait. But you know what we don't have from Apollos? Any letters, do we? Not a one. But what do we have, for example, from Paul? We have the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, which systematically, incredibly spells out in a genius form, inspired by the Holy Spirit, exactly how the gospel works. So you have one guy who's communicating, he's very eloquent. He has all the, and it's not a bad thing, he's able to communicate in ways that, that, are, that are fluid and are appreciated and, and that people can just get down with, right? And then you have Paul, who evidently doesn't have that kind of speaking ability, or they're lying about him, but he has this gift from God to be able to communicate on paper and in ways that we don't have from any other author, do we? His sentence structure, all this incredible. So it's not uncommon for to come to a church or to, to have some interaction where someone says, I want you to be like that. Where they say, you're not this enough. You guys should be like that more. And You have church splits, whether there's drums or no drums in the worship, right? I went to a church that had drums. Your church doesn't have drums. I'm not going to your church anymore. If I was going to go to your church, then you know what? You'd need to have drums. I need you to be like this. So this, this is not like some sort of unbelievable scenario here. You know, and, and, and I'm not trying to complain or cry, but people will always have things. People, In fact, I remember years and years and years ago going to a teaching by a guy named Chuck Swindoll, the one time I ever heard him teach. I went to this conference, and I still remember his teaching was called Boars in the Garden. And basically what he talked about is the fact that when you labor, and it doesn't matter if you plant a church or you're a small group leader or the kitchen leader or the worship leader or whatever, anything you are, there will be people that will come, will, there will be fruit, if there's fruit from your ministry, they will come to your ministry and they will say, you should actually do it like this. And when they don't do it like that, then they say, well, I'm leaving. To which you say, I'm sorry, goodbye. I mean, not to be flippant, but it's like, okay, that's cool, I'm, you know, if you can't we can't be in agreement. I can see how we can't walk together. So what's happening in Corinth is just that. People are saying, Paul, you should be way more like Apollos. You should, they're pitting them against each other. You should be like Apollos. You should be way more eloquent. Why aren't you eloquent? Get with the program. Maybe they're saying to Apollos, why aren't you writing some letters? Why aren't you getting some of this eloquent stuff down on paper? Why don't You, well, you should do what Paul does. But I'm of Paul because he just writes these incredible letters. And he's, yeah, okay, Apollos is eloquent, but come on, Paul, he's legit. Or maybe they like Peter, the giant Jew, right? All of our, our extra biblical texts we have about Peter is he's this big, burly, like he's tall, fisherman guy, big old fat beard. And maybe you just go, I can get down with that guy. He's a man's man. He fishes a lot. Or maybe you're one of the Jews that gets saved, and the fact that he seems to continue in Jewish um, Culture and Jewish tradition, remember, it's Peter that about 10 years after Jesus ascends into heaven, it's Peter that says to, to the vision, to God, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. It's been 10 years. And then you have commentary in John where it says, that it says, and thus Jesus made all foods clean. But Peter, 10 years later, is still upholding the dietary laws. Why is it that, that, that when men come from James, so where Peter's at, at that specific time, which I'm not exactly sure. Men come from James to that place to meet with Peter. And after these guys come from James in Jerusalem, Peter stops eating with uh, Gentiles. That's, that's really wild. Can you imagine? Here's this guy who's supposed to be an apostle. He rolled around with Jesus for three and a half years. He like knows what's up. You go to the potluck and he's like, yeah, get away from me. I only eat with the Jews. I'm sure that wouldn't cause a problem. Right? That's Peter. And then Paul says in Galatians, when he's writing to the Galatians, he said he got so far off that he even stumbled Barnabas. Barnabas is the dude that like starts the church in Antioch after it really, you know, it's there's people get saved and the gathering starts. It's Barnabas that goes to Antioch, a basically purely Gentile church, and helps them. And, And so Peter has such an influence over Barnabas that Barnabas stops eating with Gentiles. And Paul says, I had to stand up and condemn him to the face in front of everybody. I mean, so if you're like a good old Jew, if you're like, man, remember the good old days when we had barbecues all the time with the priests? And, oh, man, I love the feast of booze and camping with my kids. And, oh, that was so great. Pete, Pete's my man, because he's a good Jew that loves Jesus. All of a sudden, pitying and all this crazy. And so their church is literally ripping apart. Because people are they're, they're looking at these different teachers and they're elevating them. And then they're associating their identity and their value with them. And then they become proud over other people that don't have that same identity and value. Good thing that doesn't happen anymore. So he goes on he says this. Verse 4, if I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted... It is the Lord who judges me. Now, he's not saying that, oh, if there's something going on and I'm ignorant, then God will just judge me for it. He's not saying that. We know that because in Philippians chapter 3, he makes the point that mature people, he says, if any of you are mature, then continue to walk in the thing that you know. And if there's in anything that you're not kingdom-minded, I'm paraphrasing, if there's anything that you're not kingdom-minded, God will show you that. So this isn't some. So we don't have to live in fear like there's something that God wants us to do, but we missed it. That's Gnosticism again. We we somehow missed it, but if I knew the seven layers of Hebrew, then I could get it. No. God will speak to you. He says if there's something that you're not aware of that God wants in your life, He will tell you. So the good news is, we'll always know what He wants. The bad news is, we'll get judged for it if we don't do it. (laughs) Not judgment like salvation, but the judgment we talked about. If I'm producing bad fruit from my heart, if I'm producing bad fruit in the people around me, then when I stand before Jesus... I'll give an account for that. And then he says that that will be burned away, but he himself, we shall be saved as by fire. So builders will still be saved, people that are Christians that are involved, but the, 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 the problem is that what we're doing matters. And if we're, if we're listening to Jesus, it matters because all he ever tells us is good stuff. All he ever tells us is what will be good for us and those around us. So when we know the Spirit's ministering to us, when we know, you know, you're in that argument and the Spirit says, don't say that, and then you're just like, blah, 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 blah. blah. Right? It reaps destruction. And so that's going to reap something in that relationship, isn't it? You ever said something that took years to get back? Years of trust, years of forgiveness, years of hurt, years of pain, right? Have you ever done that knowing the Holy Spirit didn't want you to do it? I'm not here to condemn people or make you feel bad. I'm just saying that that's the kind of stuff that God saves us from. That's why his will is always good. That's why he never, anything he counsels us may be hard for our flesh, for our fallen nature, but it's always gonna bear this amazing fruit. So Paul says, hey, look, uh, I'm not aware of anything that I'm doing, but that doesn't equip me. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. Verse five, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now remember, who is he talking about? Forgive me for just going on about context over and over again. Who is he talking about? Himself and Apollos. He's talking about people that are serving Jesus, right? He's not talking about false teachers here. He's not saying if you see someone who's a false teacher, then just go, ah, it's cool, we'll just have them in. Right, so if someone comes into the church and they say, "Hey, you know what? You need to be baptized at this church with this name, and that's the only way you can be saved. Is being baptized, and be saved." It doesn't mean we go, "Well, I don't want to judge that before the time." You know, it's cool. No, we we say no. That's we reject that doctrine. We reject a works-based salvation. And ultimately, if you want to continue in that, you can't come here because it's heresy. Right. We don't hate that person. We're not trying to attack that person. We say, no, you can't come here and say that. That's just not what the scripture teaches. What he's talking about is people, the builders, right? The the people from 1 Corinthians 3.10, the Apollos and Paul. And he's saying, look, don't judge other Bible people. Don't judge believers. Don't judge teachers until the time comes. So there's people that teach different things, Right? You have a Calvinist point of view that that God is sovereign, which we would concur with, but that God is sovereign and that he ultimately chooses in his sovereignty who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. And that choice is made before they're born. Uh, And and so I would argue that's probably not the case, but there's many people that love Jesus that say that's the case. Then you have kind of an Armenian side that would say, oh, you know what? You can kind of fade in and out in the extreme. You can kind of fade in and out of being saved if you happen to sin too much that day which again, I wouldn't go there. It's, I don't think the scripture teaches that at all. Uh, but they're, they're believers and they love Jesus, right? So I don't want to measure them until the time because I don't know what's in their heart, right? That's the issue. This is when Christ comes back, he'll reveal what's in the heart and he'll reveal their intents. So we might have see people on TV. We might see them. And we can go, you know, I don't really buy into that. I don't buy into the idea that if I plant the seed of $1,000, God is guaranteeing to double that seed for me. I don't buy into that. But at the end of the day, I don't know why he's saying that. I could say he's saying that because he's greedy. But do I know that? Probably not. If he is greedy, guess who's going to come and tell us? Jesus. And guess what's going to happen? Fire. Right? That will be judged and it will be burnt away. If that person is a builder, then they themselves shall be saved. But as by fire. So it's fine to evaluate doctrine. It's fine. We should be able to talk about it and all those things. What's not fine is when we want to elevate Bible teachers or we want to smash other people or we want to judge people's hearts. We have to be so careful with that. Be careful judging someone's heart because we don't know. You know, when I was, first got saved, I knew a dude that when he first got saved, he would spray paint Jesus loves you all over the place. You know, it was signs and uh, uh, freeway signs or, or uh, billboards, you know, all he would just spray paint on them, Jesus loves you. Now, if I were to drive by a billboard that said Jesus loves you and spray paint over, you know, I don't know, Bob's injury lawyers, you know, whatever's up there, I wouldn't think to myself, this is a wise plan, <laughs> right? Destruction of public property, it's illegal, <laughs> Uh, Bob might be kind of chapped because now people can't see the phone number so he can make money off injuries. You know, all these different things that could go wrong with that. And so, but if I were to say, this person is doing that because they're wicked and because they hate Bob's, you know, business, then I've gone too far, haven't I? I've judged their heart before the time. For all I know, I go, well, that's unwise. If I ever see that guy, I should probably talk to him and say, hey, there's a better way to communicate the love of Jesus that doesn't involve trashing other people's stuff. And you might be able to outreach to them in a more efficient way if you don't trash other people's stuff, right? So we don't judge them before the time. It's very difficult to actually know the intent of someone's heart. You may have even been in conversation with someone, someone you know very well, and they say something, and you think, oh, why are you harping on me? And they're like, oh, no, I'm sorry. I was just making an observation about something else. And then this and that and the other. And then this weird connection that somehow this non-secular co- connection in their brain goes all the way out here. But you or I took it as you, you hate me. We have to be careful. He says, don't judge people's hearts. Let Jesus do it when he comes back. Especially of those that we believe to be servants of God. Verse six says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. Again, this is the word for brothers and sisters. It's a word for both in Greek. But he says, these things, what we're talking about, what we're talking about, God's servants, he says, I've applied these to myself and Apollos for your benefit, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So he says, Look, I'm relating this whole point to Apollos and myself so that you guys, Corinth, Christians, you don't go beyond what is written. Now, again, in contextually, what is written is what he just wrote. This often gets used for a generic Bible verse to talk about that we shouldn't go beyond what the Bible says about things. Uh, in other words, like some people might say, "You should never drink." Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say you shouldn't drink. It says you should be wise about it. It says it's not for kings to do it. If you're Solomon, it says that different things like that. It says not to be drunk, right? It, should, it says not to become under the power of anything, I mean, addiction-wise. There's lots of things about that. But it doesn't say don't drink. So if if I come out and I say, Don't drink, the Bible says so. I've gone beyond what is written. And it's unwise. So that's true, but he's not what he's talking about here. What he's saying here is, don't think more of God's servants than what I have just written you. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. He says, I'm writing this thing to you. I use Apollos and myself as examples, and I'm doing that so that you don't go beyond what I just told you and that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Become proud. It's, yeah, it's literally the idea of like swelling up on someone. You know, you've seen those like, lizards and they get all puffy, those Australian bearded dragons, and they get scared, they, they're going to fight, and all of a sudden they just like puff up. That's the idea. Don't get puffed up on people. Don't swell up on people. And, and that's what you see. If you've ever watched, and it's, it's crazy and unfortunate, but like oftentimes, the, the church's, universally, the church's testimony to the world is just angry, bitter, bickering people. I and mean, when you see churches that, are, that, that, that debate things or split or do these things. What the world sees is those people can't get along. They talk about Jesus, and they're all chapped about music styles. They're all chapped about this doctrine or that doctrine. Because they get puffed up, we get puffed up. Your music style sucks. The clothes you wear to church suck. You should, these, you should wear these clothes to church. You should be like this. This should be your music. That should be, and then we we puff up against each other. And he says, I'm writing this so you don't do that. Don't just agree or disagree on some things. It's peripheral issues. Verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? The New American Standard says, who made you superior? Right? Because he's talking about teachers. This is a common thing, right? You learn something, some, one of your favorite Bible teachers says something on a podcast or whatever it might be, and you go, dang, I never thought of that. And then you can, it can, I'm not saying it does, it can go to this place where you feel superior because you now know that. And then someone else comes to you and says something different or something ignorant, and you're like, you pleb, you knave, do you not know? Have you not listened to John MacArthur? You know, whatever it might be. And we get puffed up. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't do that to each other. Remember, the whole point of when we do that in chapter 3 is what? He says it very clearly. But brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Three one. He says, when you do that, when you try to make yourself superior, feel superior, why do you do that? Because you, haven't, you don't have anything you didn't receive. No person makes you superior. You have no superiority. I have no superiority. It doesn't matter who your Bible teacher is. It doesn't matter where you went to school or how if you have a doctorate or a master's or a bah, It doesn't matter. It doesn't make you superior. He's going to go on there and he's gonna, it just gets worse. What do you have that you did not receive? It's it's, it's obviously a rhetorical question. Do you have a great job? You go, I worked hard to get my great job. No, you didn't. You used what God gave you. You were a faithful servant with what God gave you. That's what you did. God gave you a brain or whatever, a strong back or whatever it might be that you use at your job. He gave that to you. You could not have that, right? You, You could not possess those things that allow you to do the job that you have. Then what would you say? So it's, it's, it's important. He says, we don't have anything that wasn't given to us. And so it is for us, too, in our Christianity. We all stand on the shoulders of those who went before us. The guy's like, uh, you know, Walvrood. Uh, he's, he's just a, a guy that I like to read. Or Dallas Willard, a guy I like to read. But it's, you know, Walvrood has, he spent 60 years studying prophecy. I don't even like prophecy that much. It's not that exciting to me. I hope I don't offend anyone. It's not my deal. I think it's cool, but it's just not my deal. But Walvoord has a book. It's out of print now. It's about that big. And it's every prophecy of the Bible and how it intersects with every prophecy of the Bible. I couldn't do that. There's no way I could write that. There's no way I could sit in my office long enough to write that. But you and I get to benefit because God gifted him and he could do that. So we don't have the same ministry as Walvoid, but we get to benefit from his ministry. So what do we have? Nothing that we haven't been given. And when we realize that, it's a tremendous humbling, isn't it? Nobody here that's smart is smart because they made themselves smart. They're smart because God made them smart. Nobody here is super athletic because they made themselves super athletic. Right? That's just not how it works. We have everything that we've been giving, all truth and everything, is because God has allowed us to have it. And then he's going to say, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So there's the issue. Why be proud about something you had no control over? Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Now he's going to actually, this is interesting, it's not facetious per se. It's not inappropriate humor to address something. Um... It could be construed as sarcastic, but typically sarcasm is something where you are using to tear someone down. You're kind of using a a plain uh, or a a generalized um, flat statement to try to show something else. I think, and I'm not trying to make excuses for Paul, I think because we read about his heart. Remember Paul's Paul's commentary in 2 Corinthians about when he handed the letter off to, to be given to the Corinthians. His testimony is, when I handed the letter off, I cried because I knew it would hurt you, right? That's his testimony. So I don't think now he's, he's using this to try to say, you guys are all punks. What he's doing is he's using, if you want to call it sarcasm, if you want to call it irony, he's using a certain way of speaking to them to show them where they think they're at versus what is reality. Does that make sense? So that's what he's about to go through. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And I would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. So, what he's telling the Corinthians now—remember, he just got saying, done saying that they're boasting. He's gotten saying that they're, they're carnal, they're relating to everything based on uh, worldly wisdom, which is the idea of personal dominance and assertion, right? The completely opposite to the Christ and, or to Christ and his ideas. And so now, what he's saying to them, he's, he's, he's ironically saying, "You already have everything that you want." Do they? Maybe in the flesh they do, but they don't in the spirit because their church is trashed right now. Their church is, is completely dysfunctional right now. Their church is shaming people right now. Their church is driving away people right now. So he's writing to them saying, you think you have everything that you want. Then he goes on this and he says, you think that you're rich. You think that you have this great wealth as a church. And he does compliment them. And if you were with us in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, you guys have every spiritual gift in operation there. And God is doing great things among you and all these things. And now he's coming back with irony saying, you think that you're rich. You have everything that you could could need and more. And then he says this, you think that you've become kings. You've become kings. And then he says, you begin to reign without us. Now, there were false teachers that were cropping up at Corinth, right? We'll talk about that. That was happening at Corinth. And he's making the point, ironically, to them, you think you guys are squared away. You think you have everything you need, and you think it's without me. Now, is Paul self-important? Is he saying that he's the big cheese and that everybody, no. He's saying, and we'll get to it later, he started the church. He loves them like a father. He's been given the, the, the he's, a, he's a steward of God's mysteries, and so they're rejecting him in a lot of ways, which is part of what he's addressing, and he will more later. They're rejecting him, and he's saying, you think you're in this great position without me, but you're not. He says, you're in a terrible position. And he's going he's to go on verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held, excuse me, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we blessed. When persecuted, we endured. Uh, When uh, slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So Paul is setting up this comparison. And he's saying, you guys who are serving yourself, generally speaking, obviously there's Corinthian outliers because you have the household of Phoebe that sent the letter originally and all that. But generally speaking, he's saying, you guys at your church, you think you have it all together. You think that you're rich and you're reigning and all these things. And he says, says, in comparison, how we're viewed by the world, as he says that we are, uh, go back there, he says, uh, we're exhibited as the least of all. We're like men that are sentenced to death. In other words, the wisdom that the Corinthians are going through and are, are processing, the wisdom of this world, that's what it looks like to them, that Paul is a man sentenced to death. And in essence, he will be, right? He'll be beheaded by Nero after being in house arrest for a couple of years. So he, he says that we're like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. That's what they were. Felix, Festus, Nero, all these people that he appeared before. All the Jews that ran him out, all those times, they were spectacles, right? Because they were servants of Christ. What he's illustrating, and we'd have to go read all the the first three chapters, but what he's illustrating is he is walking the walk of the cross. He is adhering to the doctor of Jesus, and this is their estimation of it. Whereas their estimation of where their church is at with all its deficiency and dysfunction is that they're kings and they're reigning and have everything. So he's speaking in irony to them and he says, "Look, you have to understand who we are and what God has called us to. He is not saying we should all sell everything and live in poverty. All right? That is not what he's saying. What he is saying is there will be a difference in the end between a person that lives by the philosophy, if I can call it that, please no one freak out, of the cross versus the philosophy of this world. That's what he's saying. And he says that the philosophy of the cross, that's where it took him. He said they're spectacled because of the world to angels, even angels heavenly. And this is reiterated for us actually in, in uh, ver- uh, chapter 11. Angels look at Christians and learn about God's plan. That's mentioned throughout the Bible a couple times. So he says that, that where is God's servants, we're spectacles to angels. They're learning about what God is doing through, through us. He goes on, he says this, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Again, that ironic. He says, you look at us and you say we're fools because we've sold everything. We've done everything. Our lives in the past are over because we're serving Christ and whatever he wants is what we do. We're fools for Christ. He says, but you estimate yourselves as being wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. So he's making these comparisons. He's saying, look, the way that you're living, the generalistic ideals from your church, they're so broken that you look at our lives, Paul says. People that serve God with everything they have, and you look at us and you go, you guys are idiots. You're unwise. What are you doing? And he's going to go on. He says, he says look, um, verse 14, to present, uh, excuse me, the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted, it means beaten, and we're homeless. Homeless means, uh, it doesn't mean it's just that like, they didn't have houses, because we know Peter had a house and stuff like that. But it's, it's the idea that uh, they, they, have, they go from place to place. They have no, it'd be, it's linked to rest. They're restless. They have no place to go and rest. Does that make sense? In this earth. They have no place where they belong on this earth. That's kind of what he's communicating there. Not just that he's like a vagrant or something like that. He says, and we labor, literally toiled, toiling to the point of exhaustion, working with our own hands. Remember, he made tents. When we're reviled, means when we're insulted or when we're, um, people say mean things about us. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. It means we continue in it patiently. When we're slandered, when people say bad stuff about us, we entreat. Literally, we call people alongside of us. That, that's uh, that's what the word means. It means to call someone alongside, or literally it could be translated, we beg people to come with us. So note the difference. One really looks like Jesus, doesn't it? And one really just looks like a bunch of really rich people that got together and like to talk about Jesus. And that's what he's saying. He's saying there's a huge difference in, 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 in as far as it is for the quality of God's kingdom. Then he's going to say, verse 13, uh, yeah, verse 13, we have become and are still the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He says, people look at us, and this is what they estimate us to be, the scum of the world. Literally, the refuse of all things is what people wash off their bodies. They look at us, and we're just the scum, the, the skin oil, and the bum sweat, and the, 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 the hair oil, everything that people wash off their bodies, he goes, that's what people esteem us as. It's an interesting point, because as Christians, Again we've been saying this whole time it's not about your salvation. Are you going to be saved until you do this are you not going to be saved? It's not what it's about is are you going to be part of what God is doing for his kingdom? And the more we invest and the more we yield to Christ and His spirit in our lives, the more we invest in His kingdom and for our own sake and for those around us. And one investment in the end of days will, will, will yield incredible blessing to us and to those around us. And one investment, uh, I should say, the other investment in the end of days will result in nothing but disappointment, having things burned away but saved by fire. And so Paul's just illustrating to the Corinthians. He says, look, this is the life that you perceive that we have. And some of it's true. They were hungry. They were shipwrecked. They were beaten. All those things were true. But at the same time, Paul had this incredible joy, inexplicable joy, in the midst of some of the most radical suffering that we could imagine. And that's a testimony It's a testimony to how great Jesus is, to how great his spirit is, that we could go through suffering and it would actually be worth it. So many of us, myself included, we really want to dodge suffering. We really want to not suffer, which is healthy. I don't think we should be, uh, you know, uh, masochists or something like that. But the reality is that God typically delivers us in the midst of suffering and not from suffering. Because it's suffering that creates something inside of us that's so valuable when we let God make the best of it. The crazy thing is, and we've said this before, but the crazy thing is, is you're the only one on the planet, You, as you, as an individual, are the only one on the planet that gets to decide whether your suffering is for good or for evil. You're the only one. Not even God decides that. Because he's already promised that to every believer, he'll work all things together for good he's already promised it. So we're the only people on the planet that can tell him no. I'm not I'm going to stay bitter. I'm going to stay angry. I'm going to keep making accusations. I'm going to keep lashing out. I'm going to keep destroying people that tell me I could have victory. I'm going to keep maligning people. I'm going to keep judging people and I'm going to continue to reject that. We're the only ones. It's crazy the kind of power that he's imbued into eternal individuals into the eternal soul. But it, with that that imbument with that gift can come incredible blessing too for us and for those around us. We'll just read this real quick and we'll be done. I do not write these things to shame you, that's important, but to admonish you as beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you to uh, Timothy, my beloved and my faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, to teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love in the spirit of gentleness. So Paul wraps this portion up by saying this. He says, "Look, I'm not trying to shame you guys. He says, "I'm not writing this to you so you can feel really bad and then really guilty, and then, and then give me big hugs when I show up." And you know, he's not, He' says, "No, I'm not doing that." He said, "I'm telling you these things because I'm like a father to you." And This is an important idea. I was actually listening to a, a, some teachings from a pastor's conference a couple months ago. And one of the guys was teaching about this. And he made a really challenging statement. He said, you know what? A lot of you pastors, he said, you guys, you guys want a bunch of followers on Instagram and on your Facebook and a bunch of followers on your YouTube channels. You want a bunch of followers. He goes, but the reality is not many of you want sons. Not many of you want people that, that you're pouring into, that you're discipling, that you're loving. You want tithes and you want butts in your seats. And it was very challenging. I really enjoyed it, actually. And, and, and the reality is that that's, it goes for pastors, but it goes for all of us. Not many of us are willing to be parents to other people. And I don't mean jerks, like you're grounded. I mean, come alongside and helping, right? Not that if you ground your kids, you're a jerk. I'm not saying that. But not many of us, even maybe we don't think it's possible. Maybe we think it's too laborious. Maybe we think there won't be any satisfaction in helping other people, whatever it might be. Maybe we're just selfish and we don't want to get off the couch, whatever it might be. But he says, Paul says this, he says, I'm admonishing you because you're like my children. That's how much I love you. That's how much I care for you. Because you were born into a church through the gospel that that he got to teach. And so he he says, look, this is the case. This is where it's at. This is why I'm relating you to you the way I am. And he goes, and that's why I sent Timmy to you. Because Timmy is my boy. Timmy traveled with me. Timmy knows what I'm like. He knows my heart. The same heart, right, he says, it's interesting because he says, be an imitator of me, is the same guy who says the good that I don't want to do, or that I want to do, I don't do, and the bad that I do, that I find myself, or excuse me, the bad that I don't want to do, I find myself doing that. And yet he sends a guy, he says, Tim knows all about me, and he's going to teach you to imitate me. So how does that work? It's the philosophy of it, it's the doctrine of it. it's the truth of it. Timothy is coming to say, to talk about loving each other, to talk about endeavoring, repenting, Continue walking, continue chasing, uh, um, prioritizing, valuing the things of God. That's why Tim's coming. And then he has something that we're not used to in this, in this day and age. It, we live in a kind of a weird church day and age, right? Where if I, and, and I'm not poo-pooing it, and I understand that there's reasons to, to leave one church and go to another. So I'm not, please don't take what I'm saying to extremes. But we live in a church, in a, a time, a day and age where if I don't like this church, I just go to another one. If you tick me off as a leadership, I just go somewhere else. If I don't like this, if I don't like the music, if I don't like going till noon, I just go somewhere else. Right? And I'm not saying because we do everything right here. That's not the point at all. But the point is that there is a place and a, and a time for us to invest in each other. And Paul ultimately says this. He says, there are some of you there that are arrogant. They're arrogant against Paul. Right? They're arrogant against Paul's doctrine, against what Paul is saying. And he's not making threats. We know that he loves them. But he's making the point. He says, I, and he says, you, some of you are arrogant. And you pretend like I'm not coming back, but I'm coming back, he says. And he goes, let me ask you, do you want me to come back to you as, with a rod, with his apostolic authority? Do you want me to come back and clean house based on what God is doing there? Or do you want me to come back with, with kindness and with, with ease with you, to, to rejoice with you? And so he's, he's calling them to repentance with, with apostolic authority. It's worth noting. So what do we get out of this? We, you have to sit, that's what we get out of this. No, we get that we all have a calling, right? That we are all part of God's kingdom as believers. And that I am not you and you are not me and you're not the person you're sitting next to and they are not you either. And you have giftings that I don't have. And and I probably don't have any that you don't have. But it's it's one of those things where we're here for a collective. We're not to, to puff ourselves up against one another. We're not to try to esteem ourselves over one another. We're to use what God has given us for the best thing that's ever existed, his kingdom. And so for us, our calling is to repent when we know we should repent. right? When God is speaking to us and we know it then we should turn from whatever he's speaking to us about. If we feel like we cannot do that, and I, I say feel, if we feel like we cannot do that, if, if, in your, if you're in a place today where you feel like, I have tried for years to beat this. I'm always a proud idiot. I'm always angry. I'm always whatever it might be, Right? I've tried for years. I've tried for years to not look at pornography. I've tried for years to, to be wise with my money. I've tried for years to not be stingy with my money. I've tried for years, and I just always do this. If that's where you're at, get help. Seriously. Well, how, what do I do to get help? You just find someone that you trust, that loves Jesus, and you say, I need help. And either they say, I don't know how to help you, or they say, I'll find someone that can help you. And you begin to pray together. You take steps together. You invest together. See, none of us have to be stuck where we're at. If you're here today and you think to yourself, I don't even know if I want to get help. I kind of like my brokenness. Aren't we crazy like that? We just, sometimes we get so comfortable in how we're broken, the idea of not being broken and being functional is so scary. Because we're like, I don't even... And some of us, for some of us, for all of us probably, but for some of us, we don't know who we would be we don't know what our identity would be if we weren't anxious anymore, if we weren't fe- fearful anymore, if we weren't depressed anymore. Who would we be? We wouldn't be the person that always gets the phone calls. We wouldn't be, we, it becomes our, our central identification of who we are. And the idea that Christ could deliver me for that is maybe one of the scariest ideas I've ever heard before. And that's where faith comes in. That's where your friendships come in. That's where prayer comes in to say, Lord, I do want to take forward. Your word says that, if, that you can move me out of this struggle. Your word says that if I step out of this, that there's victory and it's joyful, but I don't see how that could be. And so, Lord, will you move me forward in this? I'm not asking for you to just miraculously make me different per se, but I am asking for you to reveal yourself to me so that I can understand how I can step forward in this. And again, that's where you can get help. Will you pray with me? Because I feel lost. That's why you've got to love the Psalms, right? Was it Psalm 46, 44, where David says, my sins have gone over my head. I love that verse. Because sometimes you just feel like, my sins have gone over my head. I am drowning, and I don't know how to get out of it. And Jesus says, he'll pull you out. He'll work with you. He'll bless you. Sorry we went long. The Lord loves you. And there's great things in store for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these letters of old that were written by your servants, by your inspiration, and we get to read them today. Thank you for this incredible thing, the Bible. We appreciate how it encourages us and it convicts us and it spurs us on, and we don't know where we'd be without it. But Lord, we thank you for the filling of your Holy Spirit, the giftings of your Spirit, the calling of your Spirit. We thank you for the still, small voice, and Lord, in everything in between. Lord, we appreciate what you're working in our hearts. Pray for these folks, that your presence would be with them as they go your way or their way, I pray, Lord, that they would seek you and I would seek you, that we'd be a seeking people. We pray that our community would be affected for Christ in a supernaturally natural way. We pray that people would be uh, know you by our love this week, and we have divine opportunities to tell people how great you are. So we thank you, you're very kind to us in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.